Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about voting matters, including the fact that voting matters. We'll tell you about a lady who implanted an electronic car key in her arm. We mourn the passing of Marnie, the most famous dog on Instagram. We explain how you can make money while you're sleeping. We introduce you to a lady who fulfilled a long-standing wish to go to jail on her 100th birthday. And just in case you happen to be a dentist who wants to give it all up to become a cook, we'll introduce you to a guy who did that. The Old Dog's Conversation is with Rick Antonson, a travel writer whose books dare you to do what he writes about. Stay with us. So, uh, Jim, what's on your mind? Well, you know, last week, Paul, in our particular part of the world, we did uh, the primary voting for everything from national candidates down to the proverbial dog catcher. And uh, it got me wondering about all of the different things that happen to get a person elected uh, on the very biggest stage and on the very smallest yeah. Our our election process, I think, probably could be more efficient. But, but In what I think, way? Well, every candidate should be forced to go door to door and introduce themselves. That'd be hard for a presidential candidate, right? Well, the whole process by which somebody becomes a candidate uh, involves the caucus of the political party and some kind of grooming and certainly a lot of trading of favors. You know, I, I could decide I wanted to become a judge. I have no legal experience. Right. That's possible, and it's happened. Yes. Well, we trust that somehow those candidates will show themselves to be inept or unqualified, but not not necessarily so. And especially when you, as an informed voter— um, where do you find the information you need to make uh, an informed decision on some of those down-ballot offices? Yes, in particular, if we're talking about down-ballot, I have relied on several sources to at least try to find out information about some of these candidates because they can't go door-to-door and they can't put uh, stake signs in front of every house. Uh, and even if they did, what does that tell me? But I rely on, for example, the, uh, the recommendations of the local paper, but also I, I really rely heavily on the League of Women Voters because they don't recommend candidates. Instead, they provide the opportunity for candidates to answer questions about themselves. To display their ignorance. Well, yeah. or, or their qualifications. Yeah, well, you know, that, that's admirable. But uh, how many of the voters out there do you think do that kind of research? Well, that's a problem, that you click on a, a person who's running unopposed, or you click on a person at random because you don't right. know anything about any of them. Or the name sounds familiar, like Marilyn Monroe for judge. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, that's a good person. And that happens a lot in Texas. Yes, you you're got, right. Well, here's, here's a, a thought about another system. They talk about running for office. What if it actually is a run? What if it's a race? <laughs> and right. the fastest one uh, gets elected to office. I think there's something there. <laughs> I'll be right behind you. 
Well, we leave it up to you, but we think this Tesla owner is a little shy of a full load. This item is from the Washington Post for August 27, 2019. Last year, Amy Dansby, a software engineer from Dallas, purchased a Tesla Model 3. She began thinking about the many high-tech features in the car and thought maybe she needed a high-tech feature of her own an implanted microchip to control the car. Now, in defense of a somewhat nutty idea, implanted microchips have been used to tag pets and livestock for years. A growing number of people are implanting microchips that monitor their health and control nearby electronic devices. Now, when she decided to place a chip in her arm to control her Tesla, Dansby had already had an RFID implanted in her left hand that gave her access to her computer and allowed her to open the front door of her home. She had a key card that allowed her to access and start her Tesla. She dissolved the key card in acetone, which left the microchip that did all the work. She encased the chip in biopolymer, which can safely remain under the skin. Now, the toughest part of this whole process was finding a doctor willing to perform this unconventional operation. She entered talks with three different doctors, all of whom backed out. They didn't want to risk losing their licenses over what we will loosely call elective surgery. After six months of searching for a doctor with flexible values, <laughs> she turned to a tattoo shop. Of course. The tattoo artist implanted the chip in her arm just below the wrist. A video documenting her experience has racked up nearly 300,000 views. Dansby is now able to unlock and start her new car with a wave of her hand. To be effective, the chip has to be just a few inches from the vehicle. The whole process took her a year to complete. Is this convenience or obsession? You know, I was thinking about implanting a TV remote. Now that would be something. At the age of 12, Marnie, a Shih Tzu, became an internet sensation and a poster dog for adopting older pets. And now she is gone at the age of 18. This item is from the New York Times for March 7, 2020. Before she became a celebrity, Marnie was found on the streets by animal control officers. She'd been living a pot-of-mouth existence. She was nicknamed Stinky by shelter workers because she smelled so bad. Once she had a bath and some dental work, she took on new life. Shirley Braha adopted Marnie in 2012 from the Connecticut shelter that had become her home. She fell in love with a picture the shelter posted on PetFinder. The dog had a curious feature, a long tongue that lolled out to the side, which made the dog look like it was always laughing. Miss Braha started putting pictures of Marnie on Instagram. Marnie's quizzical face and uncanny gift for posing made her a hit, gathering 1.8 million followers. In 2015, the New Yorker proclaimed Marnie the most famous dog on Instagram. She posed with the likes of Katy Perry, Tina Fey, and Selena Gomez, got a book deal, and became the poster dog for adopting older pets. And the dog loved to party. Her master said, you'd bring her out to a group of people, her tail would wag, her tongue would hang out, and she would run around in circles. It wasn't the fast life that did her in, it was old age. During her final days, the dog was listless but still cheerful. She had developed an infection that wouldn't heal, an indication that her body was shutting down. And last week, Marnie passed away peacefully. R.I.P. Stinky. Wouldn't it be nice if you could make money in your sleep? 
Well, some young people are doing just that. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for March 6th, 2020. TikTok is a popular social media app that allows users to watch, create, and share 15-second videos shot on cell phones. Users can also live stream on the app, and hundreds of users are live streaming themselves as they sleep. Creepy? Well, maybe a little. Some do it to make a little money. Through TikTok's live feature, viewers can donate digital coins that could be cashed in for real money. Others do it to gain followers. One 18-year-old added 7,000 followers as he slept. Yet others tune in to find new friends through live chat that's not available anywhere else in TikTok. In this case, the sleeper is just the medium, not the message. Before they go live, TikTok sleepers usually create a promotional video that they post to their feeds. When it's bedtime, they prop up their phones on the nightstands, get under covers, and hit the live button. And I guess they hope they don't snore or talk in their sleep. If watching someone sleep isn't boring enough, there are variations. One 24-year-old live-streamed his white Tesla sleeping in the driveway overnight. He taped the phone to the window and connected a charger. By the morning, he had collected $50 worth of digital coins. It's apparent that this isn't the path to uncountable riches while you sleep. It's just a fad that some young people find amusing. Now, when we were young, we would do practical things like telephone booth stuffing. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yes, this too will pass. Ruth Bryant had a weird birthday wish for her 100th birthday. She wanted to celebrate in jail. This item is from the Houston Chronicle for March 5th, 2020. Apparently, Ruth had always wondered about the experience of going to jail. I mean, don't you, Paul? Oh, yeah. So for her 100th birthday, the Person County Sheriff's Office in Roxborough, North Carolina, fulfilled her wish. Two deputies showed up at her assisted living facility and served a warrant, charging her with indecent exposure. Well, that's certainly a provocative charge. You'd think that jaywalking would have sufficed. The deputies then handcuffed her to her walker and drove her off to jail with lights flashing and sirens wailing. She had a mugshot taken and spent a few minutes in a cell before they released her with a souvenir orange jail shirt. Boy, she must have had a good attorney. Yeah. He had been a dentist for 43 years in Illinois. But he had another dream, to become a line cook at a gourmet restaurant. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for February 24, 2020. Peter Glatz lost his wife to a pulmonary embolism in 2016. It was a reminder that life is short. He started questioning whether he wanted to remain a dentist or pursue his longtime dream of becoming a cook. For six months, he tried putting the two careers together. He was a dentist until 4 p.m., and then a volunteer apprentice cook until 11 p.m. This made for some long days, but it reinforced his passion for cooking. By the end of 2018, he decided to try his new occupation full-time. He landed a job at an Oklahoma City restaurant called Nunsuch. Two weeks before moving to Oklahoma, he remarried. After the wedding, the couple loaded up a renovated school bus with Make America Kind Again painted on the sides and headed to the new job. The work was challenging and often daunting. Everyone else in the kitchen was in their 20s and 30s. There were many times when he came home exhausted and feeling undertrained. 
Fortunately, he was able to fill in his training gaps by watching cooking videos on YouTube. Next, the couple will head to Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Peter will be working at the Milkweed Inn, a seasonal restaurant with a menu based on ingredients picked from the forest, such as mushrooms, nuts, and berries. Peter Glatz gets our Howling at the Moon Award for his dramatic career change. In his words, I want to inspire people my age to take advantage of this time. Instead of putting yourself out to pasture and winding down, now is the time to do whatever the heck you want. Rick Antonson used to be the kind of travel writer you might enjoy reading in an airline magazine or a AAA publication. Now he has become a travel writer of a different sort. With several highly adventuresome books to his credit, he has gone to the ends of the earth seeking experiences that you'll never find on a standard itinerary. Rick, I'm very curious how you came uh, to be a travel writer as opposed to a writer who travels. Ah, nice distinction. Well, decades ago, my wife at the time and I won a trip uh, on Air Canada, and they sent us away. We actually went to Russia and uh, Switzerland, and I was in my early 20s. When we got back, I didn't have a penny to my name, and I thought, you know, the only way to thank them would be to write some short stories. And I did some short pieces, which they then could use in magazines or for their travel agents. And they said to me, gee, would you would you write more stories if we sent you somewhere else? And that began my early writing about travel. Fast forward decades later, I still wanted to do it, but I wanted to do it in book form. And I started that gingerly while I was still in my full-time career. And Rick, what was that full-time career? Well, I I used to call it the job that ate my life. It was one of the best jobs on the planet because I was president and CEO of Tourism Vancouver, a a dynamic organization with a terrific private sector board of directors. And our mandate was to market the city of Vancouver. So we launched the bid to bring the 2010 Winter Olympics to Vancouver. So it was a terrific job, but it was all-consuming. All-consuming. So then what happened? Well, my wife, uh, Janice, uh, we've been together 30 years, and the last dozen of those, she's had some really interesting postings. She she um, works in, in airport management, so she was in the Bahamas for a few years. She was in the UK, Australia for five years as general manager with the airport in Cairns, and then the last couple of years in Europe. So five years ago, I decided that this back and forth thing, seeing each other once a month, I should leave after two full decades in my president CEO role and concentrate on what was becoming a, an avocation. I, I wanted it to be a full-time book author. And so we made it work and it allowed me to live for a lot of the time with her on the Australia posting and then live uh, in, in Europe the last couple of years. So all to the good and and Uh, I think some very good books have come out of it in addition to those I was trying to write part-time in my older life. Let's talk about those books, Rick. Uh, You wrote a book a bit earlier about Route 66, which is a very romantic thing to write about. And you wrote a book uh, that was sort of inspired by your dad called To Timbuktu for a Haircut. Uh, You've written a book about searching for Noah's Ark. 
And most recently, you've written a book called Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea about your experiences on the infamous Kokoda Trail. Yes. Uh, what, what was your most memorable adventure uh, that you tried to capture in the books that you wrote? Each of these books has something quite memorable, quite special in my heart, but also in my, my writerly life. And, you know, the, the, the very first one was to Timbuktu for a haircut, as, as you mentioned. And, and what struck me there, and still today is overwhelmingly memorable, is that there are over 700,000 ancient manuscripts today in Timbuktu. But in the 1400s, Timbuktu was a, a center of, of trade with gold from the south being traded ounce for ounce in value with salt from the north. But they also had a, a strong education society and they, they kept or duplicated manuscripts that the, the camel caravans would bring into the area. So seeing and holding books that are, are six, 700 years old was fascinating. I could feel it now as I'm describing it to you. So I would say of one book and one example, that was forever in my, my subconscious when I think of travel and blessings, I think of to actually be able to touch something that old and smell it, feel it. It just was wonderful. So your books are pretty eclectic, Rick. <laughs> yes. Where, where do these ideas come from? Do you decide to travel somewhere and then find the idea? Or do the ideas precede the travel? What, how does that come about? I think each of the three of us and people listening to this, most have had great adventures, sometimes months on end when they've been traveling or, or living elsewhere or having this tremendous sense of, wow, I'm, I'm just so fortunate to be seeing, hearing, tasting, meeting, all of those things. But it's rare that a travel experience, even an extended one, would be able to sustain a, a book-length treatment. Often, even great trips would maybe suffice to do a magazine article or a piece in a blog. But for a, a book to come out of travels, really requires, I think, the traveler to have been home and reflected. But it also needs to have, have been a trip with lots of incident and anecdotes. Uh, a publisher once said to me that nobody wants to hear, and then I went over the next sand dune, or I had the most comfortable bed I've ever slept in. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 don't want, they don't want to hear that you had a great meal. They want to know that you were starving. And when you looked at this plate of unfamiliar cluster that something moved in the corner of the plate, <laughs> ate everything anyway. You know, one of the characteristics I think of your books, Rick, is that you have managed to combine present day personal experience with a lot of history. What has you do that? What, how are you built that way? Well, I, I think part of it is, is the good fortune of having encountered travels that brought a, hey, Rick, you don't know anything about this, but it's fascinating you. And as I began to research on each of the books you talked about, I found new information that augmented everything that I'd, I'd felt or learned or seen on the trail. So in walking with ghosts in Papua New Guinea and, and crossing the, the Kokoda Trail, I, I did not know the name Kokoda Trail. Now, in World War II, 
at the time, the Australians and Japanese were fighting along Kokoda Trail and the Americans were in another part of Papua New Guinea. And those two events were in fact the, the, the first times the Japanese had ever lost a land battle in like 60 or 70 years. So it was the turning point in, in that part of the war. When you're in Papua New Guinea, it's the jungle that was there before, the same 17 shades of green, and you feel like you're in history. You can see the divots where people were were enemies, maybe only 30 feet apart, waiting to to kill one another. And it was it was horrible. It was quite emotional. One last question here for me. Um, do you have advice for travelers our age to really experience the location they're traveling to? Yeah, there, there can be a temptation to us to take the easy road and be mindful that we don't want to slip. And if we're far away, we don't want the cost of, of uh, health care to, to disappoint us or any encounters like that. I think one um, one's first concern uh, can can be that they have a, um, a safe passage on their journey and and uh, are healthy and return that. But but an important aspect is to not share away from the the things that give you a smile, to try and, 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 you know, the first decision for any traveler is, should I go alone or go with someone else? And I think you get to a certain age where you'd rather be going with someone else because you want them to see that sunset, to, to have that sip of red wine with you, to see a lobster being cooked and, and knowing it's coming to your plate. To have that with someone else to look back and and whether it's a, a mate, whether it's a, a life partner, um, but I, I think the decision to travel with someone else and ensure that you're going to have a healthy journey is so important. You know, I, I traveled with my two sons. We over five trips circumnavigated the northern hemisphere by by train, and we ended up one one year spending a week in North Korea. And I don't know that I would do that with my wife Janice um, and I don't know that I would often do that again now that one of my sons has has two children one of them Riley the other Declan um, and and I, I just don't know that we would put ourselves in as vulnerable a position as we did when we were perhaps younger and uh, just thought we would rebound from it anything because we were resilient uh, so Rick do you have uh, your next project already targeted you know, I do uh, two things. One is that I have a, a new book coming out in the fall that I think can hit home with a, a broader audience. And my other books that, you know, the full moon over Noah's Ark was, you know, really demanding to, to get to that mountain, to know that the, the legends, the stories of Noah's Ark were there to, to go into Iraq and Iran and Armenia. That was an adventure and, and, and in places where you can't go now. So my new project is more accessible and it will come out in September, and the title is Train Beyond the Mountains, and it's Journeys on the Rocky Mountaineer. But what sets this book apart is that my travels were with my 10-year-old grandson, Riley. And that just, it was tremendous. And I think to anybody who has grandchildren or to, to parents who have kids that they think maybe the grandparents would like to travel with, I think there's an urgency in my writing, because as I encountered on the train so often was was other people uh, maybe 50 60 70 saying oh i wish i'd done this with my children when they were younger my grandson was wide-eyed with the whole comfort of it but we also had 
tremendous experiences in the in the Rocky Mountains in Banff and Jasper. So very exciting. And uh, Train Beyond the Mountains comes out in, in September. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.